Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. And then a further complication of that is that we're looking as the government to expand our commercial opportunity space. We want more technology in our space. What that likely means is that you're going to be dealing with a company who received no assistance whatsoever from the government in terms of the generation of their intellectual property, whereas a government contractor effectively recovers 100% of their IR&D expenditures, and they do it in a very short period of time. Now, when we start to add on to that, competing commercial companies with what I'll call traditional defense contractors, you have a very uneven playing field. I think from a defense contractor perspective, we would not agree that in all cases, that it isn't a level playing field. I think you have to really assess what it is that you're developing in the OTA. Because if you're developing a product or service that's intended primarily for defense application, then IR&D is the color of money that you're going to utilize to develop that technology. Because if there's no commercial application for the technology, then If I develop that out of profit, which is um, what Shay was describing, then if I can't make a commercial sale or a direct commercial sale, then there's no way for me to recoup that investment because the cost accounting standards don't provide for that recoupment vehicle other than through IR&D. For this special episode of the Acquisition Talk podcast, we'll listen in on a fascinating discussion with top experts on intellectual property, moderated by my colleague from the Mason GovCon program, Jim Hasek. Enjoy. Fortunately, we've got we've got two things to work with. We've got a great panel of people we're going to talk to. I am, I think, as you mentioned, a senior fellow here in the Center for Government Contracting in the School of Business at George Mason. Uh, we're going to be talking with, of course, first Richard Gray, who is the effectively the IP czar for the Defense Department, if that's a good way to put it, and a member of the 813 panel, the Government Industry Advisory Panel on Technical Data Rights. I'm just told that if I've been looking for the report. I'm told just now that it's available on the NDIA website. I'm going to grab that after the talk. Richard also teaches in the government contracting program at another university named George Washington. In We'll call them our crosstown rival across the river. We have Shay Assad, the former director of defense pricing at the Pentagon, who also ran acquisition policy for the Pentagon in the former role, of basically as the pricing czar, who was once described, I like to say, as the most hated man in Washington. Shay told me the other day, I, I think that just meant that I was trying to get a good deal. I was trying to wield some of that better buying power that the previous administration had uh, told me to go after, and it seemed pretty reasonable. Uh, and then we've got Bill Alkington, uh, who's a former IP executive at Collins Aerospace, a member of the 813 panel. And we have Kelly Kyes from Boeing, who runs IP strategy for the Boeing company. It's a company with, with a lot of IP, to say the least both on the commercial side of life and on the government side. So 
hopes you should be able to give us a perspective about how things differ between dealing with a monopsonist by any given government with respect to weapon systems, certainly the U.S. government, a pretty big one, and dealing with commercial customers and indeed suppliers. I want to talk about what prompted us to get this panel together. Does it matter? Does it matter if government owns the intellectual property rights to, say, weapon systems that it is, or even any system, complex system that it procures over a long period of time? What can you do with those rights? Can you leverage it into better prices? And uh, so if you have a chance to read the paper, the case that I looked at was something pretty mundane. Trucks. Military forces buy trucks, the U.S. Army, the U.S. Marine Corps, they buy trucks. After the Cold War, they decided that they needed to replace their trucks, which they prosaically refer to as medium tactical vehicles. So the U.S. Army decided we, we're going to buy a whole family of medium tactical vehicles. And we're going to call it the family of medium tactical vehicles. And in the process of buying these vehicles, they actually managed to procure as well the design rights. They had the rights to base most of the design behind the trucks they were buying. And in parallel, the U.S. Marine Corps, because it had somewhat different requirements, reasonably so, they decided we need to replace our medium tactical vehicles. So we're going to launch a program called the Medium Tactical Vehicle Replacement. And But this time, we're going to when we buy them, we're not really too concerned about buying and getting the data rights. So in one of those programs, the FMTV, as they say, the Family Medium Tactical Vehicles, the Army Trucks, the Army Truck Program was reconvened, which is to say after buying five years of trucks, they went out and said, hey, could some, we got the design rights. Could somebody else build them for us? And a contractor, as it turns out, the Oshkosh Corporation, managed to take the contract away from the incumbent, the folks who had developed the vehicle and who'd sold the design rights to the Army. And in the process, the government saved about 9% on each truck that it bought. But when the Marine Corps bought its trucks and bought it again from Oshkosh, incidentally, uh, they did not get the design rights. So they didn't have an opportunity to recompete that program. They had to continue going back on sole source contracts. I'm gonna close this story by saying that the army eventually winds up buying some of its trucks on a sole source contract and the Marine Corps winds up buying some of those trucks on a sole source contract. And so you might wonder if you've got the IP rights, maybe you can leverage it for a better price if you're gonna hold a competition. But there's a concept in economics called dynamic limit pricing where maybe somebody who has an effective monopoly on something will gradually reduce the price just to ensure that nobody tries to get into the market. Did this happen with trucks? So I went looking and devised a fairly careful pairwise comparison of certain lots of trucks to certain lots of trucks. And what I found was that the army paid going from a competitive contract to a sole source contract for the same stuff, for the very same vehicle, paid on that sole source contract 24% more two years later. In the Marine Corps, where the government did not have the rights to do a competition, they wound up paying for their trucks 20% more. So the remarkable result to me, to me it was almost shocking that not only did the price go up by that much, but actually holding the design rights, at least in that one uh, set of comparisons, didn't matter. Now, maybe I should be shocked Captain Renault in Casablanca, but so I'll ask, I'm going to go to our pricing czar. I'm going to ask Shay, you ran pricing for the Pentagon. Should I be surprised? Should I be shocked? Should, or, or is this not an unusual result? And does it, or maybe doesn't have too much to do with IPR? Yeah, I, I don't think it should be shocked at all. The, the reality is that 
I think that the initial price that was paid really was a function of the company's desires to win the competition and be very aggressive in their pricing. And both of them probably assumed, irrespective of whether the government bought the data rights or not, that it wasn't going to be competed, which meant that they were, able, they were going to be able to propose their cost and recover a reasonable profit on that. And that's okay. Sometimes we go into these competitions, even though the government, they really don't ask or want companies, quote unquote, to buy in, companies will. And there's nothing illegal about it, just the way it is. We've actually had some companies bid zero to supply a product in an initial competition because they wanted to get into a marketplace. The fact that the price went up approximately the same, four points isn't a huge variation, was probably more a function of the companies trying to recover their cost and, and get a reasonable profit on that cost. And who you really have to look at is both the Navy and the Army and say, were they competent? Did they negotiate a fair price? And my guess is they probably did, thinking of a reasonable cost plus a reasonable amount of profit on top of that. They probably thought they were, right? And what you're measuring, what would be more interesting to know is you're measuring a price index. The real question would be, what was the profitability based on the actual cost that it took either of the two vendors to build that product subsequently? Now, that is and, that is hard for me to get, definitely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we had it, but you wouldn't. But the, I, I started to think about this more and more. And the challenge as we go forward, the environment that you were looking at when you looked at the trucks and I probably participated in somewhere between 15 and 20 dual source competitions with missile systems and radars and radios, you name it. I was involved in it, but my perspective was from an industry perspective, not involved as a government employee. And during those competitions, a good part of those products were being built by those companies that were competing by the primes. That world has completely changed. And the reality is the primes manufacture very little. For the most part, they assemble. They don't manufacture. And so what that means is we as the government need to do a much better job of understanding who actually owns the intellectual property. Is it the prime or is it the subcontractors? And when I buy intellectual property from a prime, am I getting the sufficient intellectual property from the subcontractors? And then a further complication of that is that we're looking as the government to expand our commercial opportunity space. We want more technology in our space. What that likely means is that you're going to be dealing with a company who received no assistance whatsoever from the government in terms of the generation of their intellectual property, whereas a government contractor 
effectively recovers 100% of their IR&D expenditures, and they do it in a very short period of time. Now, when we start to add on to that, competing commercial companies with what I'll call traditional defense contractors, you have a very uneven playing field. You have a defense contractor who's been completely reimbursed for their IR&D and sometimes reimbursed for the IR&D directly or the R&D directly. And you have a commercial company who took nothing but a total and complete risk and used risk money to fund their IR&D. Totally different world. So as we move forward, a lot of our traditional thinking about intellectual property is going to have to change because we're going, if we're successful, and we being the government, I'm a retired employee now, but I'm not speaking for the government. But if I was in the government, I would be trying to make a thrust to get more commercial participation, to get advanced technologies from commercial companies. That's going to mean that we're going to have to radically change our view of how we acquire intellectual property and who has it. It's going to be quite a challenge for both the companies and take on top of that, how are you going to run the program 15, 20, 25 years from now? How are you going to spare it? Who's going to supply the spares? Are you okay in a commercial environment? And, and that takes an examination of the technology to say, is there going to be competitive pressures in the commercial marketplace that are going to control the price of their participation with the government? Because the government is not going to be the driver of commercial pricing, right? It's going to be the commercial marketplace if it's truly a commercial item. And then add on top of that, not to make it even more complex, Jim, this world of commercial of a type, which is really a defense item that people get to call commercial items. And this is really a complex environment, and it's going to be a challenge for you and other academia when they're looking at history, because an important element of that is going to be to try to understand what was the make-buy composition during these particular competitions where, where the companies supplying the product. And, and for example, in the 80s, the companies built their own printed circuit boards. They, they had their own fab shops. They did all of their fabrication internally. There were only situations where there was a very unique skill that didn't exist within the company for example, clash crimes and things of that nature, where they would go outside the company to buy them. And, but the companies were motivated, at least in that time frame, to keep things in-house. That's turned on its head, right? You look at most products we buy, the supply chain is really manufacturing the product and the prime contractor is assembling it. That's what's going on. That's a lot. That was great. I, Let me... Let me try to pull part of that out and pivot over to Richard, because I'd like to folks currently in government, or our, folks, our fellow who's currently in government, a chance to, to build on that, to respond to that. Richard, you just heard Shay was saying a 24% price increase, depending on how badly they were doing before, how much money they were losing. 
that might not be unreasonable and it's certainly not shocking. And indeed, that's procurement. Maybe you need to worry about, Shay's also saying is when, heck, I, I buy a car, if I keep it for 10 years, I'm, I'm keeping it a long time. If the, government, if the army buys a truck and they keep it for 10 years and ditch it, then that would be very strange. They tend to hold on to these things for a very long time. Uh, so sustainment and obsolescence is an issue. Can I ask, so what is your office interested in? Maybe which side of that, which end of that time horizon? And are we getting some reasonable results? And, and if so, where are we not? Thank you. I think you, in some meaningful respect, you provided my answer in the first five seconds of your question, which is the way we're approaching this is I'm turning first regarding the detailed financial analysis to people just like Shay. In fact, a couple of years ago, I would have turned literally over to Shay and, and asked for assistance in, in that that portion of the detailed analysis. Nowadays, we have uh, other folks, Shay's successors, that I would rely on. It, and you mentioned at the beginning that the intellectual property, the new intellectual property cadre office that we've stood up within the acquisition and sustainment division is to be more clear about what that is. It really is a cross-functional team with expertise from legal, contracting, engineering, fiscal, sustainment, program management, you name it. We are trying to tap into all that expertise. So we're really looking at full spectrum. Everything that you mentioned in your question, we're looking at. I do think that one of the biggest challenges that we have is recognizing that when we've been saying for years, we have to have IP strategies for our programs and we have to do them early, but we need to find a much better way to have meaningful engagement with industry, to talk about business models, business plans, and be able to predict for the long term. So we really are looking at not just this initial production and maybe the follow-on production, but we're really looking at the entire sustainment tail for that program. And until we hear differently, competition in appropriate ways and appropriate manners with full understanding and respect for privately developed intellectual property, while understanding that when we're funding or co-funding the development of intellectual property, we have to be able to get our return on investment as well. And one of the primary ways we do that is by having the ability to energize and insert competition in appropriate components. I'm going to go ahead and relieve Kelly of the obligation of saying it later. I'm just going to go ahead and say MOSA early on and get it out of the way. The modular open systems approaches is going to be one of the ways we are approaching this complicated concept of whether the IP is generated by the prime at the subcontract level, commercial, non-commercial, DOD funding, no DOD funding. There is a, a great spectrum of different intellectual property rights, implications, business models that are coming into any complex system, changing over time. And one of the ways that we're going to try to accommodate that is by taking a modular approach, trying to engage with our industry partners so that the government's intellectual property strategy and the private sector's intellectual property strategy for any given program are synchronized, if nothing else, at least not inconsistent, aware of each other and able to understand how they relate to each other. And I hope that doesn't sound too philosophical, but that's a big part of what we're going to be doing. And we're heading into, I think, an unprecedented area where we're going to have routine, more robust, more detailed discussions and engagement with industry to be able to discuss these issues early and have these hard discussions about how are you, how is your intellectual property strategy allowing us 
to have appropriate competition downstream, where frankly, you might not want us to have competition, but we do. Let me pivot on that last thing you said, because you said that we'd like to have government and industries, or rather government and its contractors, IP strategies synchronized, or at least they shouldn't be in conflict. So if I think I'm trying to remember my game theory here, but if you've got, that suggests we can devise perhaps a cooperative game rather than a purely competitive one, where there's some win-win to be achieved if we have, if we have opportunities to succeed together, okay, by, by dealing with IP on the same, uh, with the same mindset. Let me ask Kelly, how would perhaps, where do you find those opportunities for synchronizing IP strategies? Can you think of a program where you've done that recently, or, or can you think of a program where, oh gosh, I really wish we'd been able to do that? Or is this a bit of a pipe dream? Is it really just, are you, maybe is it a zero-sum game, and we are going to have difficulty finding those win-wins? You tell us. So I definitely don't think it's a zero-sum game. I think that it, we can't approach it in that way. I think what Richard described about having early conversations earlier in the life cycle I think that's absolutely necessary. Having dialogue around what the government's objectives are, what their needs are as expressed in the life cycle sustainment plan. Industry wants and needs that information. We'll use that to adjust our business strategy, our proposal strategy. Also, we might take that information into account in making future investment decisions. I think the dialogue is critical in that regard. At the same time, I think there is definitely inherent tension between the competing business models. I, I'll just describe it that way because that's how the 813 panel described it in one of its early tension papers that, that you can find in, in the paper if you're interested in looking at it. But the paper does explore some of that tension between the government's needs for competition and sustainment and industry, specifically OEMs, needs to recoup their investment and generate a reasonable return on that investment. And so there's, I think, healthy tension there that I think we're always going to have, right? We're never going to completely see eye to eye, I don't think. I think it's definitely possible and necessary to identify win-win solutions, surely. And I think we can identify those solutions. I will say, I do want to compliment the department because I have observed and my colleagues have observed this emphasis on earlier dialogue, it is happening. We do have some programs where this, those discussions about the IP strategy are occurring in the technical maturation and risk reduction phases going into development. And I think that those are great conversations to have earlier. I know for a couple major programs, there were also RFIs that were issued that were specifically focused on data rights. How do you define certain terms? How would you define OMIT data? How would you define form, fit, and function data? Topics like that, I think, are good to get on the table early and have that dialogue and then follow up on those discussions in industry days and also in responding to draft RFPs. I would be happy to pile on that one thing that I think we also need to mention early, a mechanism that we are going to start seeing more and more frequently that will support and facilitate this early discussion and long-term planning is we will soon be looking at the implementation of a statutory preference to have special to use specially negotiated license rights for both non-commercial and commercial scenarios. That essentially by definition is going to drive us to the table to sit down and discuss things and plan for creative, philosophical, potentially complex 
potentially changing over time, forms of license, escrow arrangements. There's going to be all sorts of things that we're going to have to be discussing to try to have tailored agreements rather than uh, relying on the more traditional approach of just sitting back and working within the default or standard license rights that the DFAR specifies, which doesn't do us any good when we're talking to a commercial, non-traditional defense contractor. And so that's going to be something we're going to see. And that's going to change the way we engage on intellectual property matters by trying to negotiate more specially tailored deals as a routine matter, in fact, having a preference for it. Richard, since you're the law professor and I'm just on the business faculty, can you remind where where was that statutory preference passed? It's codified in the main technical data statute, 10 USC 2320. Cool. It's it's paragraph F, I believe, off the top of my head. Which I know how to look up. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Kelly. I was just going to say, just to follow on to what Richard said, it's making its way through the rulemaking process. So there was already an advance notice of proposed rulemaking issued last year. There was a public meeting, which again, I'll just again take um, the opportunity to compliment the Bar Council on utilizing um, advance notices of proposed rulemaking and public meetings to enable the dialogue between industry and DOD, specifically on topics like data rights, which is just inherently so technical. Uh, I think it has really been value added to enable that dialogue and um, really enable the listening and the understanding of what the concerns are and the needs are on both sides. So, and, and Jim, and well, the whole panel, everybody, that's an exact, I appreciate Kelly saying that because setting up those public meetings, using this new approach for advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, public meetings, and then followed up by the normal rulemaking scenario, where we're again having more public meetings, is one of the ways that we have, are, are demonstrating this commitment to have unprecedented levels of engagement with industry early on, not only in making individual business deals and thinking about program planning, but actually revising the entire implementation of the regulatory and statutory scheme. And it's we are doing that approach for every single DFARS data rights case that we have, and we have seven of them, I think, running in parallel right now. That's just one of the examples. In terms of, if I could make a comment, in terms of valuation of IP and how it's treated in a competitive environment, one of the things that the government's also going to have to do is change its view of how it deals with commercial companies who are competing with defense companies. For example, I, I know that in a number of competitions that we have held in the government, especially as it re related with the use of some OTAs where cost sharing was involved. Basically, the way it was being treated was that the commercial company had to take money out of its pocket and actually cost share, where the defense contractor could use its reimbursed IR&D as its cost share. And that's about as unlevel a playing field as you can have. And so we really do need to step back as government and industry because, you know, what we're after, and I can only speak from my historical perspective, not only as a government employee, but as a major defense contractor, they want to level, everybody wants a level playing field. And, and we need to rethink how we're dealing with not just the intellectual property, but how the intellectual property came about and how companies are being treated when they're being expected to make cost shares, especially in, an, in a research and development environment.
Because if I'm going to get funded by government to do something, and I'm not risking my own money, I should, I think you're saying I should expect a certain return on that non-investment, if you will, or lower investment. And if I'm, I think you were saying earlier, if I'm betting some serious coin on something, then I have a reason to expect a completely different return because the risk is adjusted. Yeah. And if you're expecting me to cost share, if not only do I have to bring my own independent research and development, but then I have to take more money out of my pocket to cost share when I'm dealing with somebody who's taking their IR&D that's been government reimbursed and they're using that as the cost share. That's not quite level, right? That's not a level playing field. I think from a defense contractor perspective, we would not agree that in all cases, that it isn't a level playing field. I think you have to really assess what it is that you're developing in the OTA. Because if you're developing a product or service that's intended primarily for defense application, then IR&D is the color of money that you're going to utilize to develop that technology. Because if there's no commercial application for the technology, then if I develop that out of profit, which is um, what Shay was describing, then if I can't make a commercial sale or a direct commercial sale, then there's no way for me to recoup that investment because the cost accounting standards don't provide for that recoupment vehicle other than through IR&D. So to some extent, it is challenging when you're looking at commercial uh, companies who or non-traditionals who generally work in the commercial space versus traditional defense contractors. I will say that there are a great deal, or maybe not a great deal, but there are some many prime contractors and middle tier contractors playing both spaces, right? So Boeing's not the only company that has both a commercial and a defense division as part of our portfolio and other defense contractors are the same. And I will say that the investment decision-making is different in commercial and defense, but also the profit, right, is different as well. So in the commercial space, you don't have the, the, the DOD profit policy. You don't have a, a FAR and a DFAR regulations that you are complying with. In the defense world, yes, as Shay has alluded to, there is much better cash flow, right? But I think that the risk proposition associated with that commercial and that defense investment is reflected in the profit margins across commercial and defense. But I think you would find, surprisingly so, that the profit margins of many commercial companies are in fact lower than defense companies. So it's, it doesn't necessarily hold true that just because I'm a commercial company, I, because of the competitive market, it, the marketplace I deal in, now if, I'm a, if I'm a commercial company in a sole source environment, I'm able to do some things perhaps that really increases my profit margins. But if I'm in a competitive environment, and I'm talking about the industrial sector, I'm not talking about Apple and Facebook and all that stuff. I'm talking about people who build things or manufacture things. It, it's a very different profit margin scenario. It, it, it really is. Let me ask Bill. I want to go to Bill because Kelly was saying Hey, it's not just us. There are a lot of military companies that, that sell to government and also sell to us. I think maybe Collins Aerospace, where you used to work, is one of those. Is it different if you're in the middle of the supply chain and you're not actually making jet aircraft, but you're making stuff that goes on, say, jet aircraft, and also selling to the government those subsystems built? So I guess the business model 
you, this came up in the A13 panel on a number of occasions, is really fundamental to understanding what's going to work for, for companies and for the government. And often you'll have a business model where people will put huge quantities of profit into the development of some new or modified system or subsystem for commercial sales and then and then want to provide the benefit of that to the government through sales of a modified version of that system or subsystem to DOD the issue arises when one of the issues that arises in the discussion is at least in the past my experience that the DOD program office will insist on or will try very hard to get government purpose rights to the intellectual capital in that commercial system that is being modified. And often the modifications can be quite trivial from an investment point of view. So I recall one system that one of my former employers, I've worked in aerospace and defense for all my career and worked for GE and IT before Collins Aerospace. And to some extent, this is true of, of them as well, that in one particular case, I, we had an investment program that ran to about a billion and a half dollars for a product line and some of its variants. And the government uh, was gonna pay us something in the neighborhood of 100 million to do modifications and testing. And about half of that money was really for testing. And so the attitude of the program office was that they should get ownership-like rights, GPR, to all of that commercial investment, along with the investment that they were going to be making of about $50 million. So this seems back to, to Richard's, we've had these conversations for years, that the sense of the equities here just doesn't add up. And you say the government can't really make use of if it gets GPR to the stuffs that it paid for, it can't really make use of it because if it can't get GPR to everything else in the system, then it's dead in the water. And, and the answer is that's the way it works on the commercial side of the companies. You have customers that want variants and the variant would only be for them and it isn't saleable to other people. And so you have this business model that really is tailored to modifying something, a product or a set of products that have been developed a lot of money. And the idea is to modify that product suite to meet the specific needs of each of the customers that comes along. And if you don't see a benefit generally to that modification, you will often say to that commercial customer, we're happy to do it for you, but you're going to have to pay for it. And then they want all kinds of rights. And inevitably, you end up saying, no, you can't have all kinds of rights because our business model would go south. So 
I, I did want to mention that I do think having at the table in those early discussions experts in valuation of IP rights is critical because in order to assess the very question that Jim raises in his paper, how much good is it really gonna do us to get these rights? You want someone there to be able to do the financial analysis. And I've dealt with people in our in finance departments for many years, and they just don't know how to do this generally. That's my personal experience. I'm not saying no, nobody in a finance department anywhere. I'm just saying my personal experience is that people in finance are not the, they're, they're certainly educable, but they don't necessarily know how to do an assessment, a fair-minded objective assessment of the value of intellectual property rights. They're not often IP valuation experts. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think to uh, amplify what Bill is saying, one of the other things we have to place a value on is very complex. What we're talking about is really complex, but you've got to place a value on the time benefit of having a company coming forward with a product that's ready made. I don't have to go through a development. And so not only am I not spending the money for the development, I'm not taking the three years or the four years or the six years or however many years it would have taken to develop and qualify that subsystem. Yes, it will have to go through some degree of qualification, commercial or not, got that. But we have to now start to expand our view of the value of intellectual property from the benefit of the time value of the product itself and how quickly can I get it to the field? What is it doing to help me provide additional capability to the warfighter quicker? At the end of the day, if I'm still gonna get it to him 10 years from now, then it's not gonna have as much value to me. But if I'm under the gun to get something into the field right away, then, you know, the value of that providing that commercial product in its end state or near, near end state becomes really important. Right? And really. that necessarily assumes that someone's bringing the IP, I think you're saying. Yeah, well, bringing the IP and bringing the product. In, in essence, what we're trying to do is we're trying to buy commercial products that have already been developed and have a logistical supply chain in, in place already so that we don't have to make those investments. As Richard and his team steps back from this, they're gonna to have to evaluate, well, what's it actually cost to develop this? That's one thing, if we decide to do it ourselves. Secondly, am I really getting a benefit by having the product right now versus what are the pluses and minuses of if I just go develop it myself versus get a commercial product? If the answer is, well, you're getting a unique technology that no other company presently has, then that's a, that puts you in a very different environment 
than one that says there are quite a few companies that could probably develop something like and, this. And that point is critical, right? Uh, is what who else is out there and what are the other options that are available in this hopefully competitive environment? And so one of the other things that we're about to see, and I don't think I mentioned it yet, but we are just now kicking off a multi-year pilot program to study intellectual property evaluation in major programs that by statute requires us to to incorporate commercially available IP valuation techniques to the maximum extent practicable, to evaluate those and to engage with industry as we're doing so. So for the next four years, we're gonna be doing reports on this and, and doing studies on this. And so having these discussions and being able to understand what products are available, who's got what, the relative uh, merits of this company's approach versus that, who's more mature, who's, where's the risk. I think in Bill's scenario, there was $100 million of testing to occur for that particular scenario. That's something we'd like to think about as well. But just being able to have those discussions in a candid manner, and for us, let's be honest, in a competitive environment is where we want to have that discussion. But being able to talk about those business models and, rec and talking about investment, return on investment, and how that all plays in, simply having opening that dialogue and being able to have hard discussions in a competitive environment is one of the things we're going to be seeing a lot of. I'm curious, if the, if, is the pilot program focusing on just contracts? Are you looking across contracting vehicles to include OTAs and the like? It's focused primarily. On, it was, it's on programs. Yeah. So we're looking at, we're identifying programs that will be, for lack of a better way to say it, participating as named programs where we're going to look at what's been happening, look at evaluation activities that are occurring, do some testing on innovative techniques, but we're also going to be, as, as part of this pilot, be doing more uh, across the board review of what all the department is doing across its programs and looking at all sorts of instruments and ways that occur. Because the concept, one of the first questions for this pilot is, what do you actually mean by IP evaluation? You don't just mean in a competitive source selection, right? There's tons of other scenarios in which evaluation occurs. Sole source negotiations is an obvious second, second listing, for example. And it's not just procurement contracts, right? It's OTAs. It's any other instrument we might use in developing feeder technologies, inserting tech, prototype projects, inserting technologies downstream, et cetera. Yeah. And I, I would mention, and I'm pretty familiar with a bunch of specialty companies that do this kind of thing. And they are generally not familiar with the DOD procurement environment, the language and the meaning, and even how to think about valuation in that context. I have high regard for these companies, and I know principles in between a half a dozen and a dozen of them, and they're very good at what they do, but what they do isn't valuation of intellectual capital rights in a DOD context. So when we are talking about this, we do need to have people who actually know how to do this stuff, have experience doing it, understand the language of DOD contracting, what the rights are, what the meaning of the rights. Bill, I couldn't be happier to have you make that a point that it's not just 
grabbing a commercial valuation technique that's designed for a purely commercial to commercial transaction and then saying, DOD, you should use that approach. Right. It's got to be Absolutely. adapted. It's got to yeah. be evaluated. And that's really is one of the core elements of this pilot, as because this was one of the recommendations of the 813 panel. And going back to what Bill said earlier about the fact that you typically don't have people in on, in, on your finance team, if you're a defense contractor, who are valuation experts. And I just wanted to make the point that the primary reason for that is that historically, defense contractors are using their own IP to provide products and services. So generally speaking, unless the government is asking for broader rights than they would otherwise be entitled to under the law and applicable regulations, you would just essentially be asserting whatever rights category lines up with the funding test if it's non-commercial technology. I do think that initiatives like MOSA do, do place emphasis on valuation because now there are opportunities to now take like a software product that one company might have that might be the best whatever software solution that's out there right now and then say, okay, maybe there's an opportunity to make a sale of this software to get it on somebody else's platform. And I think those are the types of scenarios which are really more analogous to the commercial market where you now have an opportunity to develop a business model on a product that you're no longer just going to embed in the system you're offering to the government, but rather essentially possibly license it to the government so that they can provide it to others or to license it to your competitors that are acting in that space. I also wanted to go back to something Shay said about the speed and flexibility. If you do have somebody who has this cutting edge commercial technology that nobody else has, that's really why the other transaction authority is available. It's for speed. It's to enable that flexibility and to enable the parties to take those considerations into place when um, negotiating IP. At the same time, I, going back to Shay's comment about leveling the playing field, I do think that Congress took that in consideration when establishing the prototype authority for OTAs because if you're a non-traditional contractor or you're a small business, you actually don't have to provide a cost match for prototype OTAs. But if you are a traditional defense contractor, you do have to provide a cost match. And I think that was one of the ways that Congress leveled that playing field by saying, traditional defense contractors, you can participate in OTAs as well, but you are gonna have to bring some funding to the table in order to do that. I've got two questions from the audience that I wanted to work in. One comes in specifically for Shay, and the question is, it goes back to the bit about loss-leading contracts. And so the question we've got is that it seems like Shea is saying that it makes sense for companies to bid unrealistic money-losing prices to win contracts, assuming that their IP rights will hold and provide them, I'm summarizing here, provide them a bit of a, a monopolistic advantage to a certain extent in follow-on contracts. But then the actual price discovery doesn't occur until later. And that leads to a material and perhaps even expected increase in costs. But he wants to know, the questioner wants to know, does that make sense? Should price discovery ideally occur earlier? And does it make sense for the government to get the good deal up front? Does it make sense for government companies to buy in? This is legal, of course. As I recall, it has stood up to the challenges in, indeed, even in the FMTV program to GAO challenges. What do you think, Shay? Is this, is this yeah, a- I think somebody may have misunderstood what I said. Please. Uh, the government, at least my experience with the government, never encouraged a company to buy in. And I can tell you in the 
20 years of industrial experience that I had. And I, I was involved in a multitude of all the major stuff I was involved in. And not once did the company, quote unquote, buy in. And it depends on the company, right? There are some companies who believe that is a successful strategy for them. It is not the preferred strategy of the government, right? The government really isn't interested in creating environments where companies have put themselves at financial risk up front and eventually end up in extremis where the government has to deal with that environment in a number of instances. What I'm saying is that it is a strategy. Some companies use it. I don't endorse it. I, I think that there's a lot of different ways to make money, but buying in isn't one of them because you don't stay in business long if you are not successful with that strategy. And I must have been, if I misspoke or was misunderstood, I want to make it very clear. I don't support buying in. I don't think it's a wise strategy. And I know when I was in government, we, I don't recollect ever participating in a program where people were pleased with the fact that a particular company had decided they were going to buy in. The discussion always was, we can't prevent companies from doing what they do. And so maybe that's a little clearer. No, no, I think that is. Let me pitch another one here that we've gotten from viewership. I want to ask specifically, I, want, I, think, I think this is a good one for Bill, because of your experience at Collins, your career at Collins, but also to Richard, because hey, you're the guy in government who thinks about this. Question we've got, and I, I've heard this assertion before. I've heard this assertion before that companies, many companies, are actually more concerned about the government releasing their IP to a competitor than by any internal use of that IP by the government itself. And, and there's actually a reference to OMIT data and somebody, OMIT, and I think somebody can actually maybe help me with that acronym because I'm not familiar. But here's the father continuing the question. It's how might intended use be better defined in early discussions, similar to commercial practice to license for a well-specified field of use? That's the question. Either Richard or Bill. Okay. Yes. In a word, that is the major concern because we don't expect most agencies, the federal government, for example, to make avionics products um, in competition with Collins Aerospace. So yes, in a word, that is the concern. And it's very difficult. We talk uh, among ourselves, defense contractors and uh, commercial aerospace companies and so on, little companies and big companies and so forth. And there are a lot of horror stories out there about people's intellectual capital falling in, into the hands of competitors or falling into the hands of a, a different P&L center within a company. Uh, so I'm talking about commercial now and that other P&L center feeling like it has leave to compete, use that IP in ways that, that it wasn't licensed to be used and so forth. So yes, that is it in a nutshell. That is the concern. And it's, it's like our future, the future of the company and in a particular product line and so forth. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that's uh, I agree with all that. By the way, omit operation, maintenance, installation, and training. Ah, thank you. The, and generally speaking, top level data, although we can't talk about this for very long without talking about that. The notion is that omit data, the default license for that is unlimited rights. However, that unlimited rights does not cover omit data. That is also another acronym, DMPD standing for detailed manufacturing or process data. So this is a long discussion that, for example, was probably about one year of the two and a half years of the 813 panel discussions. But And there's at least two answers, I think, to the original question. One of them is that the default rights scheme, even as it is if you didn't negotiate something special, is designed to be sensitive to that. That is the nature of the DMPD carve-out for example, of OMIT. That is the notion that if it is proprietary, the, the question I think presumes that it was refers to proprietary IP, presuming if we mean it's developed entirely at private expense, then the standard license the government would get would not allow that information to go to competitors, except in very specific, essentially statutorily carved out scenarios like emergency repair and overhaul. Although there are ones now that are more interesting to the vendors that the government's allowed to provide it to support contractors for certain scenarios. And, and when we're talking about, even when we're talking about this, then the next, one of the next things that's going to come up is the government has an interest in ensuring it meets its statutory requirements for core logistics capabilities and things like that. And even when we are doing things in-house, we frequently or not infrequently also do have on-site support contractors. And that's when we start getting into the notion of let's describe in more detail how the government is intending to support, sustain this item and figure out whether that leads itself into a specially negotiated license discussion. And at the risk of sounding like a professor before I'd be quiet here, using an interest-based negotiations approach rather than a position-based approach, like I need GPR because that's the only standard license that gives me competition rights, is, is how we're, we're looking at this. Is let's talk about what we want to do first and then talk about how we can tailor a license to make that happen. If I could follow on to Richard, I think that Richard mentioned that the DOD has other statutory obligations, and I think that relationship and sometimes tension between the data rights statute and the logistics statutes like the 50-50 rule, depot level maintenance. I think that's where this preference for specially negotiated licenses becomes so important because as Richard say, as, as Richard said, if it's if OMIT is top level data and it excludes detailed manufacturing and process data, which it does by statute and the regs, then what happens if there is other types of data or software? That, that the government might need for its own organic maintenance purposes or for its own organic depot level maintenance purposes, which gets down to a lower level, then what do you do in those cases? And I think oftentimes there's this sort of tension around the definition of OMET and this tendency on the part of the government to try to define all data that might be necessary for any level of maintenance into this category of OMET data when I think instead, as Richard said, if you focus on that interest-based assessment and, and identify, well, what are the government's organic maintenance needs and what are their, their competition desires as far as 
licensing to third parties. If you focus on that interest-based approach, then you can talk about, can we craft a specially negotiated license here that will give you the data that you need to do what you need to do, but at the same time, from a contractor's perspective, enable them to protect what they really need to do. And as the person who asked the question intimated, oftentimes it's really not that much of a concern about the government's own organic use and enabling depot level maintenance in as much as it's a concern about that data falling into the hands of competitors who are operating on the sustainment side who haven't made those same investments to the extent you're talking about products that have been developed exclusively at private expense. So I just wanted to add that. One more tiny thing that I think we have to mention that is brought up naturally by this discussion is additive manufacturing. 3D printing and additive manufacturing is, is a new wrinkle in the idea of the, as Bill mentioned, traditionally you wouldn't anticipate the government being a supplier of particular products or things like that. And, and clearly for an avionics package, that's a little, that's different, but for something that is additive manufacturable, 3D printable, there's a whole new practical consideration that, that is arising now. And a lot of folks on the government side are there are some tough discussions happening to let them know that even though you've thought for years that the idea of limited rights means in-house use only, and you just want to go ahead and manufacture it in-house with a, with a 3D printer, but you didn't realize that there was a limitation on the government not being able to manufacture additional quantities that's been built in there for years that didn't really matter before because we didn't have a manufacturing capability that we do now. That's going to be a big point of discussion in the future. And it's not really a change in the law. It's just a change in the technology that's available that would permit spare parts local 3D printing is something that as a business model and as a, as a capability that didn't exist before is going to be a discussion we're going to be having a lot in the future as well. Well, and because as Richard said, the definition of limited rights specifically prohibits manufacturing. But if a company is developing an additive manufacturing um, approach to a particular product, those are the opportunities for that dialogue with between the contractor and the government to determine who's ultimately going to print the part, right? And you have to take that in consideration in scoping that license because you can't provide the data with the expectation that the government's going to print the part and then not especially negotiate the license rights so that they can actually print the part. So I think that's really important. I also think, uh, I know that DOD is in the process of finalizing its DOD additive manufacturing strategy. And I know that at least uh, I think AIA and NDIA did respond and provide some comments. I think one of the policy level topics that industry raised in those responses is what is the role of the government as a manufacturer? Because we typically have thought about, thought as the government as a maintainer of systems. So what is the role? And I think that's an interesting topic to explore from a policy perspective. Kelly, let me ask, I want to ask about prevalence because I want to ask first you, specifically because of Boeing, but I also want to ask Bill, as experienced Collins. Before, your company at one point was considering bidding for the ground-based strategic deterrent program. You dropped out for some understandable reasons. Before that, I remember one of your top people, Leanne Carrick, was uh, quoted in the press as saying, we had this problem with our, she was asked about some IP leaking from Boeing over to, to Northrop Grumman. You said fall into the hands of, it sounded like you were talking about the Russians, but I think actually we're talking about another contractor. And she said, you know, she was asked about it, said, yeah, because the vector was through the government, it was actually through the Air Force. And she had the question, uh, is that alarming? And she said, this isn't the first time this has happened. If we expect that on a program, this happens to a certain extent, we just try to keep it to a minimum. Is it really that? Is it is that alarming? Is it not alarming? Are there things we can do to make that better? Or is that just 
cost of doing business with the defense department? I can't speak to the specific, I haven't seen the specific article. No, not, my response is going to be general nature, not specific to any one program. My comment earlier about your, your data being passed on to your, to a competitor in that situation, and I should clarify, I meant through like legal means, right? So my point was that if the government desires the license rights that are broad enough to enable them to share your data with a competitor, that's where the rub is going to be for the OEM. Because you have to understand from an OEM perspective, how that's going to impact your business. So if I'm going to especially negotiate a license and I've got a product that I, or portions of a product that I've developed at private expense, then I'm going to be concerned about what business opportunities um, are going to be enabled by providing the data with the license rights necessary so the government can provide it to another party to compete against me. So that's what I was describing. As far as is it just the nature of doing business with the government, the regulations do provide solutions. If a supplier is concerned about providing like uh, secret sauce that it has to be deliverable, I think first and foremost, the, the supplier is going to try not to deliver it in the first place. But the regulations do provide a path to provide that data directly to the government. So you don't always have to go through the prime contractor, for example, in delivering data. I think sometimes that might be complicated by the fact that the prime contractor is integrating various piece parts of the system together. So sometimes from a practical perspective, that might not be a path forward. But I think, you know, whether you're in the defense industry or commercial industry, it's not really industry specific. From an IP perspective, all companies and all OEMs are concerned about the transfer of know-how. And it's a really hard thing to protect against. So if, I, if I'm working with you and I may not be providing like my detailed procedures, but if you're a contractor working with me in my facility and you watch how I do something over and over again, or I teach you how to do something, then you are learning for me. And it's really hard to protect against that know-how transfer. And I'm, that's also, but it's a nature, it, it's, it, it's always a risk across industries, right? It's not really defense specific. Yeah, I, there, are, there are studies of this. I think John um, Huntsman, former governor of Idaho and ambassador to China did a study and updated it, I think in 2017, about theft of U.S. intellectual capital. And I think his estimate was in the, certainly in the hundreds of billions of dollars a year, if not, maybe it was 350 to $500 billion a year, something like that. And a lot of that is actually exposed through supply chains. So it's not just bad actors in a company or cyber attacks on an enterprise's information network. It's also when you provide proprietary information to your business partners, whether they're suppliers or customers or, or co-development partners of one kind or another, you supply that to them because they need it in order to do their part of the, whatever the complex system is. And it, it tends to walk out the door one way or another. So yeah, there's a real risk across all industries of losing, not only as Kelly said, know-how through teaching others, but also proprietary information that's related to business process, that's re related to technology, that's related to product design and so on. 
Yeah, so it's not the U.S. government that is uniquely risky. It's just that it's, it is very risky to hand over important uh, revenue. You're depending on this to differentiate you in the marketplace. You hand it to somebody else, and there's a real risk that your differentiation is going to go away. And you won't necessarily know that it got stolen. Companies don't generally put a lot of money into monitoring the, the marketplace for stolen proprietary information and for misuse of their licensed technology. So it's going back about, Bill, I want to ask, it's going back about 12 years for me, but I, I did a book once about defense contracting and, and, and corporate alliance management. And one of the things I looked at was the issue about leakiness of knowledge. And I often got the pitch from people that a certain amount of, of leakiness, a certain amount of appropriation of your, your intellectual capital, maybe not your intellectual property, and I, if that make that distinction, I think it's a big distinction that you like to emphasize. A certain amount of that leakiness is necessary just to for, for, for having an efficient supply chain that has multiple companies. But when does it get, when do you start to get stressed out about it? What's the flag that says, hold on, went too far? Yeah, it's different in different circumstances, but I guess the way I think about it is that you have people in, often in your enterprise who actually, because they want to be good people and because they want to have good personal relationships with other people in other organizations, and because they're asked for certain information, they end up wanting to give it when, in fact, it's really not in the company's best interest to give that information. So one of the issues that I've seen is inadequate briefing and monitoring of these development teams. And there's no program by program policy often that's put in place and monitored and reinforced and taught and so forth for the members of the team. And let's take a mundane example. I have a document on my desk. It's a 300-page document. And it has in it about 10 pages of information that is needed by the other party in a particular development program. So am I going to take the time to redact or to take out from that document those 10 pages? I'm an engineer, and I've, I'm under pressure to produce and so on. Generally, if I'm left to my own devices, I just send the 300-page document. Yeah. Some, of it's, uh, some of it's behavioral. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, let me ask, I got another question from the audience, and uh, Shay, it's a follow-up on the um, buy-in thing. I'm going to summarize it because it's a long one from George. It says, uh, basically, okay, yeah, so we don't like, we're not recommending buy-in, but, but was there a there was there a period of time, like maybe around 2000 and thereafter, where we seemed to signal, hey, we're not going to mess with your data rights as long as you bring us good prices? And have we seen, has this been a sort of a, you think there's been a profound policy change since then? Say since maybe the first Bush administration or maybe even going back to the Clinton administration? Yeah, I was on the industry side during that time. And, and I didn't see that. If someone, if some company heard that or saw it, the company I was with didn't experience it, at least not to my knowledge. So I really can't 
make a comment about someone saying, give me a good price, I won't screw around with your intellectual property. The, the reality of life is that there is so much in terms of training and education that needs to take place within the acquisition community, the government acquisition community, and understand, and it's a hard, this is a subject where when you start to talk about it internally, at least my experience in government, people's eyes roll over. And frankly, so do companies' eyes roll over for most people, right? It's a very arcane, but important, extremely important topic. And the, the reality is that I didn't experience uh, on the industrial side during that time frame situations where companies were trying to Shanghai our, or tell us that they wouldn't take our intellectual property. In fact, I found very few instances where we couldn't figure out a way to give the government what they needed and still protect our intellectual property. It, just, it wasn't this major, massive problem, at least in the procurements that we, were, we somehow figured it out with the government. Now, the, good, the reason for that is on most of the major programs in the 90s, especially, right? Raytheon was on the, the receiving side of getting intellectual property from other companies because they were competing in a second source environment or in a leader follower environment. So it, it, it wasn't, and the government was encouraging companies to participate in that environment, that is to compete and to make the investments that were necessary so that they could become competitive sources. And I think I mentioned to you before that what was discovered during many of those competitions was that, and the examination of that intellectual property was that the company decided to do things very differently than the actual original manufacturer because uh, we felt, we being on the company side of this at that time, that we could produce the product much more efficiently and much cheaper if we used a totally different process and we did. I don't want your IP. <laughs> that's right. I mean, that, that's fundamentally what went on. And I think one of the things that this whole environment of that Richard and his team need to think about too is when you want competition, how do you want that competition to take place? Is it two companies that are participating in the early development of the overall product? And in that environment, the sharing of intellectual property between the two companies is completely different than if you're saying, no, what we're going to do is have one prime contractor build this product and design it and build it. And then we want you to come in afterwards and either build it to print or, or build the same product, form, fit, and function. Very different intellectual property discussions between the two companies when that happens. I've got uh, two more questions. They're both about education and training. And I think that they're probably very important for Richard. So maybe if you want to lead on the um, response here, let me get to 813 questions. I think that for, Bill, you were stressing the importance, and Richard, you had noted that there are, our contracting people, our finance people, the need, whether in the side of government or they're in, uh, in industry, but certainly in government, question goes, they need to understand IP valuation. And, and our, our 
heard the assertion that our technology transfer people might be part of this, but they need to understand contracting. Their acquisition people need to understand all of this. And they also need some training on the question of, of IP protection. How, at what point, as I was saying to you, Bill, at what point is showing a little bit too much? How do you keep the IP segregated in, in ways that you, you shouldn't? And when can you hint at things in a, in, a, in a negotiation? So what are you doing, Richard? Because one of the, one of the email questions I got said, man, I'm slammed here doing what I'm doing. I don't know how, how much more I can learn or certainly some of our people. Yeah, training the acquisition workforce is a gigantic part of the approach to trying to get a better handle on our IP that, that we're doing now. And that's part of the reason why we have the notion of the IP cadre, which is designed to be a much smaller group of more expert individuals, cross-functional, again, all disciplines that are relevant to acquisition and development, et cetera, but then have at the same time, as we are being smarter, learning lessons, developing best practices is being able to make sure we can share that back out with the acquisition workforce. And so DAU is a hand in glove partner with all of these activities. They now have two people on staff full-time whose job is to teach IP. We're doing a top-down and bottom-up review of the curriculum that exists to make sure that we can integrate intellectual property into the training that the career fields are getting when they're already doing the rest of their training. It's not just that IP is some standalone thing that you either might take a course or might not. It's If it's part of your job, it needs to be part of your core training. We also have a brand new, just released right at the in, in September, there's a brand new intellectual property credential that is available. We're calling it the foundational intellectual property credential. It's more like a sort of apprentice level expertise for that anybody in the acquisition workforce can get by taking certain courses. One of which, by the way, is a brand new continuous learning module on IP valuation that DAU prepared in, in close uh, effort with industry. And so there's, and the DAU overall is revamping the way it's doing its training, moving away from a certification approach to a just-in-time expertise, sort of training insertion, if you will, education insertion for folks who who can get things in real time when they need it to do their job on whatever topic makes sense. And so the entire DAU is is becoming more efficient at that, and IP has a much stronger uh, place at the table than it ever has in the past. It's going to take time of course, to ramp up all of that, all that content, but that's part of the reason why we have this office and why we have the notion of the, the DOD IP cadre that is really DOD wide tapping into all those cross-functional expertise. Now, Richard, I, uh, I, we, I should mention that we have here at George Mason, we have a great partnership with DAU. They co-sponsor our annual conference. And I do know that you're at George Washington, but dude, you're still doing an advertisement for another university here in the middle of my, no, it's okay. I express no preferential treatment for any non-governmental entity. That's uh, correct. my official <laughs> statement. Yes, we have a very good relationship with them. And they're, right. they're doing work. Very good. I think that's my wife went to George Mason. I'm very fond. Thank uh, you. So. If anybody's got two, three sentences, uh, go ahead and let's fly. We got some talking to folks. I have learned. I'm the, I wrote the paper and I've learned an enormous amount just listening. But Shay, Bill, Richard, Kelly, what? Any final thoughts? Yeah, my thought is we have some terrific people in government. And Richard, I mean, he can hit it out of the park with anybody who wants to step up to the plate on the other side of the table. When we enter into these dialogues, I think there needs to be patience and understanding on both sides of the table 
because both sides need to articulate their views in a very complex environment that, and we've been talking a little bit about that complex environment, but the fact that the government, and it was really Congress, the fact that Congress stood up or, or told the department to stand up this capability, it was a great thing. And we certainly have the right guy at the helm and we have outstanding people who are, we being, again, my view of the government, they have outstanding people participating in it. So I think it's going to be, I think we're going to make great strides in, in this world with government and industry, because there's a recognition that this isn't an, an all or nothing world. There has to be understanding, compromise, and from the government perspective, only buying what we need and not asking folks to reach beyond what we need and having a sensitivity to what it means to a particular company, both financially and strategically, when they're asked to give up their data rights. I'll just say real quickly, uh, thank you to George Mason for, for setting up this webinar. And I think in a nutshell, being able to have discussions like this on a more routine basis all the time and recognizing that sometimes it's going to be hard. A lot of people know I have a certain marriage counselor, a metaphor that I like to use about discussing IP rights in this scenario. I'll save that for the next webinar, but I'm looking forward to, to having those discussions and I really appreciate you setting up this webinar. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you. So I'll just say, Jim, the paper I thought was excellent. And let's have more of these. And what, one of my thoughts was, Richard, on these Pathfinder programs, what, do you, what would you think about enabling Jim or others to write business cases, not necessarily publish them while these Pathfinder programs are going on, but publishing something on each of them at the end. Well, for the first thing I would say, Army's doing great, great work on, on setting up these pathfinders and trying to tr identify best practices and learn lessons from that. And one of our challenges overall is figuring out how to take lessons learned and being able to propagate those throughout the, not only the DOD community, but industry so that we have a common framework. And frankly, one of the challenges I know we're going to be facing as we go forward is that if we get into some really creative uh, business arrangements, then just that creative business arrangement is something that actually might be considered high at some point if we're going to have some challenges and how we discuss that. But yeah, I'm open to anything for specifically on the Pathfinder programs. I would reach out to our Army points of contact. They have a whole group that's working on this and explore what makes sense for them. We would love to work on that. I'd love to talk. I've had a couple conversations with Secretary Jetty's people about it, and I'd, I'd love to pursue that further. I also wanted to thank George Mason University for hosting the event today. This dialogue is always so Great to have, especially in a COVID environment where we can't meet face-to-face. -face. I think having these web-based sessions is really great. I did want to put a plug for the Aerospace Industries Association and NDIA because I know that they're both always interested in working with the department and certainly I'm sure they'd be interested in working with TMU to bring other industry voices to the table as well for these types of events. Jim, I just wanted to let you know that I chair the AIAIP committee right now. So if you wanted me to facilitate that dialogue, I could do that for you. That would be terrific. Thank you very much. Though. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jerry, for setting this up. I think it's been great.
This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.